Okay, guys, uh, we're going to head back to Isaiah today, to Isaiah chapter 40, uh, excuse me, chapter 41. And uh, so please turn with me in your Bible back to Isaiah chapter 41. And uh, th- th- this is um, this is great to get back in Isaiah. Uh, we <laughs> we are at, we are living at a time where we desperately need a big God, and uh, th- there is uh, there are are such benefits to glean in our time in Isaiah. And uh, so as we come back, uh, let me start the PowerPoint here for you. And again, if you're just joining us and you would like to follow along with notes, you can find those notes available as a Word document in the Zoom chat window. You can download them there. Okay, so let's get this going here. Um, Okay, so I don't know if you've had this experience recently, but have you ever wondered, well, first of all, do you even remember January? Do you remember January of 2020? I mean, I know that seems like, a, you know, years ago and how different life has become since January. So if you can even remember January, and I, I confess I've had trouble remembering January, um, if you could go back and know then what you know now about coronavirus and what life would be like, would you make any changes <laughs> would you do anything different? I mean, would you move some stocks around maybe? Uh, would you kind of sneak over to Costco and buy that extra thing of toilet paper before everybody and their mom was trying to go go do that? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. But you think about how much has changed. And one of the challenges with what's happened in the last eight weeks is that nobody really knew and to some extent really knows the extent of this, the nature of this, and if you go back and read news reports from January into February when all this was starting to start um, getting headlines overseas and China and whatnot, you realize nobody really knew what was going on. It was new. People were trying to get research. There was lots of guessing going on. Do you remember that? Lots of guessing and people saying, oh, no, the sky's falling, and other people saying, no, 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 it's going to be fine. This is all just blown up, and and of course, we've all lived this through together now, and we see that, uh, you know, uh, neither one of those was really correct. I mean, this ended up being very, very significant. Um, and each day, it seems like we learn a little bit more. But um, it's interesting to, to think how um, weak we are, how um, vulnerable we are, because we don't know the future, do we? We, we can't predict what's going to happen, and even with advances in modern science that would you believe that weathermen still can't predict the weather? You know, they've got the Fox four Doppler radar, super duper on steroids machine up on the hill. And, and even then, you know, there's a, there's a 90% chance of rain and, you know, it looks like this all day, right? It's just absolutely beautiful and not a cloud in the sky. So, so that's, that's the nature of who we are. We, we do not know the future. We cannot know the future. And even in our, in our technologically advanced era, we don't know that. And here's here's one of the most remarkable. Yeah, Lee, do you have a question? Are you recording? Yes, I am. Thank you. Thanks for being the audio guy, bud. Appreciate you. All right. Um, and one of the ways that the the Bible convinces us that it is really God's word. You know, I had a conversation recently with somebody, and they were saying, "How do we know the Bible's true? And how do we know it's not just stories?" And it's been one of the ways the Bible shows us that it's true is it actually predicts the future. 
And one of the things that the prophets do in the Bible is they tell us things that are going to happen before they happen. And today, in our little chapter here, we're going to see a standoff. We're going to see that this is, this is the, uh, the high noon, uh, showdown at the OK Corral, uh, divinely speaking here, right? I mean, th- this is, this is a great, uh, scene in Isaiah's prophecy here as God calls everyone to come to court and he calls the gods of the pagan nations and he calls all peoples everywhere to bring evidence that there is some God, there is someone who is greater than the Lord. And uh, now, I, I, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but, but this, is, this is great. And we are going to see God predict the future as an example of his unmatched, unequal nature amongst all peoples and all gods. And it will give us confidence in who he don't, don't you, aren't you comforted in knowing that you and I don't have a clue about the future, but God's already written it, right? You and I uh, don't know what the next 10 minutes will bring, but God has ordained all of history. And just as we read in Psalm 103, he treats us and walks with us through that as a father has compassion for his children. And that is the confidence that we can have today, and it's the confidence that Isaiah wanted to communicate to his people as he brings this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 41. So let's look at it together. Um, it, it's, it's, it's long. I'm not going to read the whole thing right now. We'll, we'll work through it together. But uh, just get a sense of how this starts. Isaiah 41.1, Coastlands, listen to me in silence. And let the peoples gain new strength. Let them come forward. Let them speak. Let them come together for judgment. Do you hear that? He's saying, we're gathering together in the, in a courtroom. We're bringing evidence. We're gathering people together for judgment. And uh, verse 2, who has aroused one from the east, whom he calls in righteousness to his feet, he delivers up nations before him and subdues kings. He makes them like dust with his sword and the wind-driven chaff with his bow. So so come together in my courtroom, and God is going to tell us about this one, this leader, this coming leader who is aroused from the east, who will deliver up nations before him, and subdue other kings, okay? And so we're kind of on the edge of our seat wondering, who is this this person who's coming? So let me start the PowerPoint here for you so you can jump in here and, and follow along. Okay. So there we have it, okay? Here's our study. Uh, seeing God through judgment and redemption. So the title today is No One His Equal. No One his equal, and we'll look at chapter 41, Lord willing, today. Now, you may remember, um, as, as we uh, we kind of get get our bearing here in Isaiah, that uh, there's all sorts of things going on in Isaiah that we might we need to just kind of stop and, and think about for a moment. Okay, so here's this is when the book of Isaiah occurs, the first 39 chapters. It starts in in uh, 73 B, uh, BC, and it goes uh, pretty much. Um, uh, I can't see that there. I'm blogging it. All the way, yeah. 
So all the way through the time of uh, uh, 681, and you see the, uh, up here, these are the kings of Judah that are in power at the time of Isaiah's ministry. Remember most recently in chapter 39, we talked about Hezekiah. These are the Assyrian kings. Most recently, we've talked about Sennacherib. Um, and then there's some stuff going on in the, in the north there, okay? But just to kind of get your bearing, this is what's going on historically. Kings of Judah, these are the prophets. Uh, Micah, you'll remember, is a contemporary of Isaiah, kings of Assyria, and so on and so forth. Okay, so why am I telling you that? Well, because when we come in here, we need to remember that the events that Isaiah is writing about in chapters 40 and following, particularly the chapters we're going to look at in the next section, which is 40 to 48, these events take place some 150 years after Hezekiah. Okay, remember we read about Hezekiah in chapter 39. Uh, he, he's the last king of Judah before the, um, well, he's the last king of Judah that Isaiah writes about before the captivity. There will be more before the Babylonian captivity. But at that moment, between chapter 39 and chapter 40, there is a 150-year jump. Okay, so you, you got to get that. There's a 150-year pause so that when we come to chapter 40 and 41, 150 years have transpired. And what we see is Isaiah is prophesying at this future time to Judah when they will be delivered from captivity and will return to Judah. So what we're reading in Isaiah 41 is God's message to the Jews as they are in captive, as they are captives in the nation of Babylon some 150 years after Isaiah's ministry. It's kind of neat. Isaiah is giving prophecies to future generations of Israelites who will be part of the Babylonian captivity. Okay, so with that context, I, I, I made up a little uh, timeline of my own here. Let's see if this makes sense, okay? So Isaiah's life and ministry spans about 740 to 680. And th this is, Isaiah actually walked the planet and prophesied in that time. The first deportation to Babylon, meaning when Babylon invades for the first time, they invade uh, Judah and they take the first set of Jews back to Babylon. That happens in 606 BC. Now, okay, so so the bonus round today is what famous Bible characters were in that first deportation? Do you remember? David knows, and he just told Carrie, but his mic's muted, so. Uh, who, who's, Daniel for one, right? <laughs> yes, Daniel and his <clears throat> friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So you'll remember now, so when this is happening, Isaiah is now prophesying. This is weird. Isaiah is giving a future prophecy that applies to Daniel and his friends. Really interesting. Even though Daniel uh, lived, you know, over 100 years later than, um, than Isaiah. Okay, so the first deportation to Babylon happens in 606. Jerusalem is finally captured in 586 B.C., and as you can see here, the captivity in Babylon lasts how many years? Do you remember? Seventy. Seventy, that's right, from 606 to 536. So there's our 70 years. And now, here's what I want you to see. It's somewhere in this time. It's somewhere after Jerusalem is captured, but before uh, Judah and the Israelites return to uh, Jerusalem. They leave Babylon and they go back. Remember, that's the time of Nehemiah and Zerubbabel uh, as they rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls. So Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 40 to 48 happens sometime right in this period. Okay, you got it? Does that make sense? Okay, so let's go here. Now, 
what's going on here is God is going to bring, we might call it comfort in the courtroom. Comfort in the courtroom. Now, the first thing we need to talk about is who is speaking in chapter 41? Go ahead and shout it out because uh, I've, I can only see about half of you right now on my screen. The so, Lord? Uh, the Lord is speaking. That's right. Now, remember, in Isaiah 40, Isaiah was speaking about the Lord, right? Remember, um, you know, do you not know? Have you not heard? Right. And the everlasting Lord, the king of the right. Isaiah is talking about the Lord in Isaiah 40. In chapter 41, there's a change. And now God is speaking directly. Coastlands, verse one, listen to me in silence. Let the people gain new strength. Um, so now, uh, and, and we know God is speaking because if we look down at verse four, uh, the speaker identifies himself. I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. So God is speaking directly in chapter 41. Notice, too, chapter 40 announces comfort. Chapter 41 is a courtroom scene in which God invites the nations to see if he has any equal amongst the pagan gods. He will demonstrate his superiority through the deliverance of his people. And that's what he's going to announce here in chapter 41. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but but here let, let me just tease you with this. What we're going to see is God is going to tell the future in a particularly specific and dramatic way regarding how he will deliver his people from the Babylonian captivity. And you will not believe how this is going to happen. This is really interesting, okay? So that that's God's just sort of teasing us with that. So you get this courtroom scene, and God invites the pagans, he invites the nations, he invites the, the idol worshipers, and he invites the pagan gods themselves to court to see if there is anyone quite like him. Now, now how is God going to do that? Verse 2, the way God is going to show his supremacy as being unequaled amongst any other gods is he's going to predict the future. Look at verse 2. Who has aroused one from the east whom he calls in righteousness to his feet? He delivers up nations before him and subdues kings. He makes them like dust with his sword and the wind-driven chaff with his bow. And we say, who is this one from the east that God predicts will come and annihilate all other all other kings and all other nations. And uh, does anybody have an idea who is being referenced here? And you're not allowed to look ahead in your notes. Don't look ahead. <laughs> who is this? The king of Persia. It's the king of Persia. That's right. You say, well, how do we know that? Well, here's the thing. Um, reading chapter 41 by itself is a little bit like watching the first 10 minutes of a movie and then stopping the movie and then coming back next week. We're not going to get the full prophecy in just chapter 41. In fact, one of the things I want you to do between now and next Sunday, if you're not already reading Isaiah, is start reading chapter 40 on through the end of the book. And uh, and you'll see this enveloped. I, Isaiah brings this prophecy that God himself gives, and it unfolds a little bit at a time. I, you know, I was talking to my kids this morning um, uh, one of my kids, uh, Eric, was in here, and we were talking about history. And uh, Lisa said, you know, uh, Eric, the Bible has a lot of history in it. And Eric looked up and said, but, you know, it has a, it, most, it mostly is a lot of stories. 
And, and uh, that was a really good insight because when we teach history, when we read history and history books, it tends to come to us in a form very different than biblical history. You know, I don't know what you think, but sometimes I find history books to be pretty dry, you know, pretty dull. It was just kind of like, you know, in this year, this happened, and here's the facts, and then you move on. But see, the, the Bible brings history more like a movie. It's this unfolding drama of God bringing about, working about his redemptive plan in the context of history. And we read it as it unfolds, like a good film or like a good novel, except this is true history. This is true biblical actual history. And it unfolds for us in a dramatic way. And that's what Isaiah is doing here. He's not putting all the cards on his tape on the table yet. He's God is giving this prophecy and he's going to unfold it little by little, chapter after chapter, as we move through chapter 40 through chapter 48. Okay, so he kind of, he's kind of just unfolding it here. But you're right. The one who's going to come from the east, we well, Okay, I am going to ruin it for you. Hold your place there. Flip to the end of chapter 44. At the end of 44, God says, okay, enough enough beating around the bush. I'm just going to tell you who it is. At the end of chapter 44, God's going to say this. Chapter 44, verse 28. It is I who says of, what's his name? Cyrus. Cyrus. He is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. Look down at 45, verse 1. Thus the Lord to Cyrus, thus, thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him. So that connects back with what we're reading in chapter 41, verse 2. Okay? It's this king from the east. He's identified as King Cyrus, also known as Cyrus the Great in history. Okay? So we'll see that here in a minute. Now, who, what was this guy about? Well, let's talk a little bit about him, okay? There, there uh, is a, uh, a painting of him. Obviously, we, we don't know uh, what he looked like uh, in his day. There are some carvings that exist. This is interesting. Do you see this little monument right here? This is the tomb of Cyrus. And you, if you want to go to a, uh, if you want to go on a trip and visit Iran, you can see Cyrus's tomb today. Uh, he was one of the great, the great leaders, the great kings in Iranian history. And you may remember that Persia is the older name for what we call today Iran. And the Persian Empire, as we're going to see on the map here in a minute, existed in what we think of today as the nations of uh, Iran and Iraq. Iraq is more properly the Babylonian area. And Iran is more properly the area of Persia originally. So that's where we're talking about. So let's talk about Mr. Cyrus here for a minute. Um, came to power in Persia in 600 B.C. And, and now remember this, okay? Jerusalem falls to the Babylonians in 586. So just a few years before that, Cyrus comes to power in the Persian region. He takes over the Medes... Now, the Medes were a region in the northern regions of the Middle East. He takes over uh, Media in 550 B.C., and then he captures Babylon in 538. Remember, at, at the time of Isaiah's writing, at the time that, that Isaiah is writing chapter 41, he's writing to the Israelites who are in the Babylonian captivity, meaning Babylon is the superpower of the day. Babylon rules the world. 
But in 538, all that changes when Cyrus the Great in the reinvented Persian Empire, now super strong as it's united with, with the Medes and with other nations that he has conquered, they capture Babylon and Cyrus takes over what was known as the Babylonian Empire. And what we're going to see is Cyrus is the one that gives the decree in 536 for the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding uh, their city. Okay, so that's that's a crash course on Mr. Cyrus. And that's who God is referring to in chapter 41, verse 2. Okay, now look at the next. P- Persia was to the east. Verse Chapter 41, verse 2 says, who has around one from the east? Well, he's coming from the east because that's where Persia is. Persia, Iran, is east of Babylon which is Iraq, right? However, remember that before he invades Babylon, Cyrus is going to go to the north, and he is going to take over the Medes and their nation. So uh, this ruler that God is talking about in chapter 41 is said to come both from the east, and verse 25 says he comes from the north also because uh, perhaps he came uh, some commentators think, you know, he attacked from the north. That could be true. Or it could just be simply a reference that he controlled the Medes to the north. So his whole empire stretches from both the north and the east. Okay, so both of those would fit. Look at the next few, few verses. Verse 3, he pursues them, passing on in safety by a way he had not been traversing with his feet. Uh, who has performed, let's see, um, he makes... Them like dust with his sword, he subdues kings, he delivers up nations. So through his various military campaigns, Cyrus conquered many nations and formed. This is interesting. I was reading some extra biblical sources this week, um, uh, history sources. And even the secular historians agree, Cyrus the Great formed the largest empire the world has ever known at this time. So think about everything that's happened in world history up until this time. Cyrus has the largest empire in the world. And that is incredible to think how many people, how many nations uh, that he controlled. I'll give you an idea here. Look at this. Look at this. You've got all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, all the way up into what is modern-day Turkey, all the way down into what is modern-day Egypt, okay, all the way over. Look at this. He comes, his empire stretches all the way over into India and into parts of South Asia. That's incredible. You see the, the breadth and length and height, <laughs> to use a biblical phrase, of his empire. Uh, he was the leader of the known world and had the largest empire in that day and the largest empire that up until this time world history had ever seen. Okay, so th- this is this is no you know rent. <laughs> this is like not not some uh, you know ruler of the week or, or, or some you know rent a king kind of thing. This is a guy who achieved unequaled status. Now that's interesting. Rent a king, Be- because God is saying God's going to say I have no equal, right? There is no one like me. How is he going to prove that? Listen to me very closely. How is he going to prove that? He's He's going to prove that by taking the greatest ruler of the largest empire that the world has ever seen up into this time. You ready for this? And God is going to make him his instrument 
of redemption in the lives of his people, the Israelites. Isn't that amazing? That's what he's going to do. And, and that's how God is going to demonstrate in this courtroom that there is no one like the Lord. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm getting excited here. I'll calm down. So we'll come back here. Okay, so there we go. All right. So now, now here it is. I, I already told you. How is he going to do it? How is God going to show himself to be unequaled? How is Cyrus now? How is Cyrus, this king from the east, this ruler from the east, how is he going to have this great success, right? He's going to, he's going to deliver up nations, verse two. He's going to subdue kings. He's going to make them like the dust with the sword. He's going to pursue them. What, okay, here's the question, guys. What is going to be the key that brings Mr. Cyrus's military and political success? Verse four. You ready? I love this. This is great. Who has performed and accomplished it? calling forth the generations from the beginning. In other words, how is this all going to happen? How has this come to pass? Verse 4, what's the answer? Jacob. You missed it. I, I, I tried to set you up there, and you guys missed it, okay? So let me do it again. Who is going to be the source of Cyrus's military and political success. How is this going to happen? Why is this going to happen? Answer, look at verse 4. Mm -hmm. I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. God says, you know why he's going to be successful? Because I ordained it. Because I planned it. Because I am going to make this happen just as God says here, he is the first and he is with the last. God is the one who plans the beginning from the end and everything in between. God is the one behind the success of Mr. Cyrus. God is the one who's going to give this man the most significant empire in world history. God's going to do it. And that's the irony. Remember, God has called the pagan deities to court, and he says, I want you to bring evidence that there is someone mightier than I. There is someone who can match me in my nature and in my works. And God says, let, 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 me, let me tell you what I can do. I'm going to bring about the greatest empire in the known world by using a pagan king to do it, and that pagan king, as we're going to see, is going to be the one to deliver my people. That's how God's going to prove it. And, and this is amazing. This is amazing. Um, when Isaiah gives this prophecy, tell me what's going on with Persia. When Isaiah gives this prophecy, back at the time of Hezekiah, right? Remember, remember this is 150 years uh, later than Isaiah's ministry, right? Isaiah is prophesying 150 years in the future. So when Isaiah is recording the prophecy that we're reading right here, right now, in Isaiah 41, what is actually going on in Persia? Answer, there is no Persia. <laughs> Isn't that great? There is no modern-day Persia. And, and, and this is even better. There is no Cyrus. Cyrus hasn't even been born yet when Isaiah makes this prophecy. And so God is demonstrating that there is none like him by predicting the future in very significant specificity and detail, what is going to happen, okay? Who has planned all of history before it occurs? 
God asks the nations, answer, only he has. Only he declares the end from the beginning. I, Yahweh, he says in verse 4, am the first and with the last. I am he. There is no one like him. Now notice this. The nations band together and they even share their gods with one another. So, so here's what happens. This, this Persian empire is coming to take over the nations. I mean, look back at the map here for a minute. Okay. Look at his empire. This is what happens between 559 and 530. Okay. What's he going to do? In, um, 525, uh, uh, Egypt is cat, or excuse me, let's, let's back up here. I'm going backwards. Where's, uh, okay, yeah, we start right here. In 550, let me, let me give you the pointer here so you can, you can see me here. Okay, can you see that now? In 550, he conquers the, the Median Empire, right? This, this, this pink area right here. Uh, and then in 547, he conquers, uh, Lydia up here in this area. And then he conquers, um, uh, the Babylonian Empire in 539. Later on in 525, his son, uh, Cambyses, uh, he uh, conquers Egypt in 525. So, so you get the idea. He's all over the place, and, and people are freaking out, right? P- people are, are uh, panicking because they know that this new Persian Empire military machine is coming. So what happens? All the nations in verse, verses 5 to 7, they band together. Look at verse 5. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. So what do the nations do? They, they come together, right? Each one helps his neighbor. You know, we have alliances happening amongst nations to try to stop the Persian Empire. Craftsmen come together. And notice the reference in verse 7 is different craftsmen who make pagan gods working together. So it's like the nations are are building this massive pantheon. They're all putting their idols together, thinking, hey, if we put all our false gods together, maybe all of those gods can stop this Persian threat that's coming with Mr. Cyrus as its leader. Now, now remember, what's going on? The Israelites are in Babylon in captivity. Think Daniel, right? You've read the book of Daniel. That's, that's the time that Isaiah's prophecy is referencing. And you can imagine that Israelites, who many of whom were slaves of one form or fashion, living in the Babylonian empire as exiles, and they hear that there's this leader coming, there's this nation coming, and he is destroying other nations. He's taken over the media empire. What's going to happen? So God is going to bring comfort to the Israelites now as they think about the coming invasion. Look at this. Look at verses 8 and 9. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you. I have not rejected. Can you imagine? You've just been hauled off to Babylon as a slave. You're in exile. Your country, your city, your temple has been destroyed. Some of your family members have died, and you're in exile living in Babylon. You don't know what the future holds. Now you hear there's this other nation that's coming that's going to overrun the great nation. They're going to bring a great slaughter, and you're wondering, what am I going to do? And God says to his people, 
Israel, I want you to remember you are my chosen servants. You are uh, descendants of Abraham, my friend. You are the people whom I have taken from the ends of the earth. I have called you from its remotest part. You are my servant, verse 9 says. I have chosen you. I have not rejected you. So verse 10, God comforts his people in the midst of the coming invasion. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who are angered at you will be shamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. You will seek those who quarrel with you, but you will find you will not find them. Those who war with you will be as nothing and non-existent. Why can Israel rest and find peace in the midst of the threats of the surrounding nation, the coming Persian threat? Why? Verse 13. For I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand and who says to you, do not fear. I will help you. Can you is that not comfort? Is that not comfort that all believers need in any situation of fear or threat or um, upcoming uncertainties? Now, now I'll be clear here. God is specifically talking to His covenant people, Israel. Here, isn't He? He's specifically referencing their covenant with Israel. He's specifically referencing their descendant from Abraham. He's specifically referencing them as his specific servant. Okay, I want to be clear on that. But but you understand that what God is saying here is you can trust me. You can rely on my promises. You can count on my word. And when you have uncertainties and threats and fears and dangers and anxieties, You can trust me, you can draw near to me, you can count on me to be there when you need me. And I think this is a great message that believers need today, isn't it? We can trust the promises of God. Uh, We don't know the future. And God is saying, you don't need to freak out about the fact that you don't know when your 401k is going to come back. You don't know when life is going to get back to normal. We don't. I was talking to my kids about this last night. We don't even know at the end of all this if life will be the same. You ever thought about that? We we may not have normal life in the future the way we had normal life in January. It may be a renovated and new normal. And from 2020 on, normal looks very different than it did in 2019. We don't know that. But we can rest assured that God who knows and ordains the future is trustworthy, and his promises are certain. And so this is great. We don't have to freak out because we don't know what's going to happen because we belong to the one who does know what's going to happen and, in fact, has even planned what's going to happen. And we know that he's good, and we know that he's reliable, and he know that, we loves, that he loves us, and so, therefore, we can trust him. Okay, good words for us today, isn't it? Good reminders for us in 2020. Now, so Israel need not fear, right? Because God's with them. Israel's enemies will be defeated. God will deliver them. The Lord will uphold and help. Now, now, what would, now just, just put yourself in their sandals here for a minute. Now, be, be honest with me here for a minute. You hear 
that this new superpower king is coming and he's going to invade Babylon where you're a slave. What are you thinking? <laughs> what do you think is going to happen to you? This is the part where you talk. Come on, I set you up again. Jump in here. Unmute and make me proud. But you're, you're thinking you're going to get destroyed along with everybody else. That's right. That's right. And, and, and you know this from history. Um, mm-hmm. When a nation is taken over by another nation, usually the slaves, the poor, the, 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 um, the secondary citizens – are the ones who suffer the most and are often the first to be killed, right? So, so what you, what you see here is, you can see Israel is thinking, what's gonna happen to us? The, this nation is gonna invade, and yet, and yet, what's gonna happen? It's this, this brand new ruler, Cyrus, who forms the largest superpower of the day that world history has ever seen. He, this is great. He's the one that's gonna send the Israelites back home. He's the one who's going to make that decree. And God says, trust me, trust me. I'm going to make this right. And don't worry. You don't have to fear. You belong to me. And, uh, and therefore you can trust me. I will take care of you. The Lord will uphold and he will help in the most dramatic way. Israel will overcome all and rejoice in the Lord. Look at 15. Behold, I have made you new, um, Oh, we got, we got to talk about 14. Do not fear, you worm Jacob. <laughs> what, what do you think about that? Um, <laughs> there's different ways to take that. It's not often that God calls his people worms, but uh, uh, that is in and of ourselves uh, uh, who the Israelites are apart from God. So it, it's it's probably here. I don't. God's not intending this to be derogatory. Uh, God is intending this to remind the Israelites of their frailty and yet their strength as they are the servants of God himself, okay? So that that's what we're talking about there. Verse 15, Behold, I have made you a new sharp threshing sledge and double edges. You will, um, you will thresh the mountains and pulverize them, and you will make the hills like chaff. You will winnow them, and the wind will carry them away. The storm will scatter them. But you will rejoice in the Lord. You will glory in the Holy One of Israel. What that's saying is Israel will overcome all obstacles. Uh, there's pictures here that they're going to be like the, the, the tools that were used for the, the threshing of grain. And, and in fact, uh, there's this picture that they are going to even thresh down whole mountains and hills and pulverize them, meaning nothing can stop Israel's restoration because God has planned it, and surely he will bring it about, and thus all Israel will rejoice in the Lord. So Israel rejoices. They find comfort in their connection. Now look at verse 17. The afflicted and needy are seeking water, but there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them myself as the God of Israel. I will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land fountains of water. I will put the cedar in the wilderness, the acacia and the myrtle and the olive tree. I will place the juniper in the desert together with the box tree and the cypress that they may see and wreck. Actually, let's just stop right there. What's he saying? 
as the Israelites think about returning to Jerusalem and rebuilding their land and rebuilding their city and rebuilding their temple and the wall and you know the things that Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and Ezra will all be involved in in the uh, the post-exilic age as we call it, the Israelites are thinking, yeah, but if we go back, what are we going to drink and what what tools are we going to have and what building supplies and you know it, it's it's not like they have a Home Depot and Lowe's they can go to to rebuild Jerusalem, right? What are they going to do? And God says here, from the very water that you drink to the massive trees that you will need to rebuild the temple and rebuild Jerusalem, I will supply all of your needs. Why is God going to do that? Look at verse 20 now. That they may see it and recognize and consider and gain insight as well that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. Do, do you see the emphasis here? Do you see what God is doing in this courtroom scene? God is saying, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. I'm telling you from the beginning, this is what's going to happen. This is what I'm going to bring about. I'm going to supply your needs. I'm going to bring restoration. And I'm going to do it. You know, you guys, sometimes God puts an exclamation point on his providence to demonstrate that it is really and truly him who is accomplishing these things. And that is what God is doing here in telling the Israelites, get this, 150 years before it's going to happen, so that the Israelites can be assured that though they are judged in Babylon, there will be a restoration. God has not forgotten his people. He has not left them, and he will surely bring about all that he has promised. Now, watch this. Verse 21. We're back in court, aren't we? We're back in court. Look at verse 21. Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forth your strong arguments, the king of Jacob said. And we say, well, wait a minute. We're back in court now. God has called the court uh, uh, back, to, to, uh, back to order. But this, I want you to look closely now. Look at the text and tell me, in chapter 41, verse 1, God was calling all the nations to come to court. Look at chapter 41, verse 21 now. Look at verse 21 and tell me, who is God calling to court this time? The audience is different. So who's he calling? Well, it says king of Jacob, so I assume that's Israel. Okay. Present your case, bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. So it's the king of Jacob, and that would be the Lord, right, who's calling people to present their cases. So you're right, Roger, the king of Jacob, the Lord, is calling for people to present their cases. What I want to know is, who is he talking to? False gods of the nations. What's that? The false gods of the nation. That's right. Look at verse 23. That we may know that, declare the things that are going to come forward, that we may know that you are gods. See, what God, what God, Yahweh is saying is he's saying, okay, we're holding court again. And he calls upon the pagan deities, the false gods to come to court and give him evidence that they have some ability, some some power in and of themselves. So he calls them to come and present evidence against the Lord 
and in favor of their supremacy and their superiority. He says, you guys come and demonstrate this. And notice this. What does God ask them specifically to do? Look at verse 22. Let them, let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. So, so here, this is great. <laughs> this is so great. Okay. What specifically is God challenging the pagan nations to do? He says, come to court, present your case, and here's the evidence I want you to present. What is he asking them to present? To predict the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see that? God's saying, I want you to tell me what's going to happen in the future. Then I'll be impressed, God says to the pagan deities. You demonstrate to me what's going to happen. I've just told you a portion of Israel's history. Now it's your turn. You tell me what's going to happen. And God challenges the pagan deities to bring forth uh, evidence of what will happen in the future. And, and that will demonstrate their validity. But of course, we know what's going to happen, right? That they may come and that they may consider them and know their outcome or announce to us what is coming. Verse 23, declare the things that are going to come forward that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, do good or evil that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. God says, okay, we're watching. Impress us. And then God sits the, uh, back. As for the former events, declare what they were. Mm-hmm. Is he asking them to explain what he just prophesied? No, he's asking them to, to explain the explain the future. Yeah, he's asking them to explain the future. Bring forth, declare what is going to take place. As for the well, former events, the, declare the what they were. The previous events are the future, right? Right, yeah, yeah. So, so God is challenging them saying, explain it. Tell us the future. Tell us what's going to happen. And then, you know, you, know what it, you know what this feels like? Do you remember Elijah on Mount Carmel? You remember that, the, the standoff, you know, in modern Westerns, you know, it's, it's high noon at the OK Corral. Well, back in the Bible, it's the top of Mount Carmel with, with the prophets of Baal coming against uh, Elijah, the prophet of Yahweh, right? And you remember that. We're going to build this altar, and we're going we're gonna to see who the real God is, okay? So, so the prophets of Baal go first. You know the story, right? And uh, so, so they, they, they engage in their rituals, and they put their sacrifices on there. They're slashing themselves. That was part of their religion. Kind of strange when they wanted to provoke their God to action. They would self-injure. They would self-harm. So they're slashing themselves. They're doing all this. They're singing to make a ruckus. And, and who's over in the corner in his easy chair? You know, who, who's sitting over there? It's Elijah. You, you picture him. He's got his feet up. And he's like, why don't you shout louder? Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe your gods are in the restroom. You know, Elijah's just over there mocking their gods be louder and maybe he's indisposed and and then what happens silence and the bible says all afternoon the prophets of baal called out to their gods to no effect and that's what's going on here as god in chapter 41 of isaiah is calling on the pagan deities show up tell us the future tell us what's going to happen explain past events i'm listening god says and then the courtroom gets very very silent as no one comes forward no one brings evidence no one can possibly match this unequaled god of the israelites who declares the end from the beginning and who gives even an express detail 
what will happen in the future. Okay. That, that's, that's what's going on here. And, and this, this is, this is one of those great courtroom scenes of, of history here. Who can tell the future? God says, bring forth your case. All the God. Now, now here's the takeaway. Okay. Here's the takeaway. Look at verse 24. The courtroom is silent. Not one pagan deity has come forth bringing some sort of word about the future, some sort of prediction about the future. The courtroom is silent all afternoon, just like Mount Carmel was silent. The prophets of Baal had nothing they could do. So here's here's the takeaway. Look at verse 24. Behold, you are of no account, and your work amounts to nothing. Okay, here's the bottom line. You ready? Here it is. He who chooses you. Now remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the pagan deities. He's talking to the false gods of the nations, right? This is God talking to the pagan gods. He who chooses you is an abomination. What's what's God saying? God is saying to all peoples everywhere, if you put your trust in a worthless, powerless, knowledgeless, impotent pagan god, you're an abomination. Because you have set your trust, you have built your life on an illusion. You have staked your very well-being on a myth. And you are to be pitied for it, God says. You are a false worshiper. Now, watch this. In contrast, in contrast to the, the impotent, powerless, pagan gods who, who don't even show up to court, let alone bring convincing evidence of their strength and of their power. Watch the contrast. Notice the contrast with me in verse 25. God says, but me, I have aroused one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, he will call on my name, and he will come upon rulers as upon mortar, even as the potter treads the clay. Now, now, just, just remind me here. How does the potter tread the clay? What's the relationship between the potter and the clay? The potter molds it. That's right. That's right. The potter has total and utter control on whatever that clay turns out to be, right? And so here's what God says to the pagan deities, okay? You had your shot in court. Now let me bring my evidence. You know what my evidence is? I'm going to bring a pagan ruler who's going to come in. He's going to annihilate Babylon. He's going to take over. But here's the thing. He's going to do whatever I, I ask him to do. He is going to be my appointed servant, just as the potter treads the clay. And in fact, this pagan ruler it says, will call on my name. And here's the craziest thing. Cyrus is actually going to develop an understanding that he is a part of Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, this tiny little nation, right? This teeny tiny little speck in the whole empire that Yahweh, the true God, that this pagan superpower king is his servant and will do exactly what he asks him to do and that he is 
he will acknowledge the name of Yahweh. Verse 26, who has declared this from the beginning that we might know, or from former times that we may say he is right? So here's God's challenge, right? Here's God's challenge. Who is going to do this? Who else can foretell the future? Who can do it? Nobody can do it. Now, we saw here um, in chapter 44, if you want to turn back over there, this prophecy uh, evolves and develops as God gives it. He starts in chapter 41, and when he gets to the end of 44, verse 28, God tells us the identity. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire, and he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. Now, this is interesting. What did God just predict that Cyrus will do in the future? Chapter 44, verse 28. What did God predict that Cyrus would do? You build a temple. That's right. He is going to declare of Jerusalem, be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. He will give, Cyrus is the one who will give the decree to send the Israelite exiles back from Babylon back to Jerusalem to rebuild their nation, their city, their wall, their temple. He's the one that's going to do that. Now, here's the crazy thing. Here's the crazy thing. I looked at this in my Hebrew Bible. The word Cyrus, that is his Persian name. Okay, you get it? God is giving this prophecy to Isaiah 150 years before this happens. There is no Persian empire. Cyrus hasn't been born yet. So so here's what God does. God even tells us the Persian name of the guy who's going to do this. It's interesting. It's not a Jewish name. It's not, it's not an Israelite name. It's a Persian name. And he puts it right here in chapter 44, verse 28, even before Cyrus was born. Look, chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars So why is he going to do this? Verse 3. This is chapter 45, verse 3. I will give you, Cyrus, the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places. Why? So that you may know that it is I, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who calls you by name. So God looks Cyrus square in the eye and says, I'm going to give you success. I'm going to give you wealth. I'm going to give you military victory. I'm going to give you political victory. Why? So that you know that I'm God and I'm the one giving you the ability to do this. You are my servant, Mr. Cyrus, God says. And why is God doing that? Does God have something with Cyrus, right? Does God want to exalt Cyrus? No, no, no. This is all about his people. Look at verse 4 of chapter 45. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor. Though you have not known me, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me, there is no God. That's why God's doing it. This is it's what the whole book of Isaiah is about, right? Let's zoom out for a minute. What is the whole book of Isaiah about? There is no one like the Lord. That's what it's, that's what it's about. There is no equal. There is no one comparable to him. And God works in history, even 
bringing about rulers from foreign nations, making them his servant, just as the potter has control over the clay, to rise this up, to bring it about, to tell it 150 years before it happens. You say, why? Because God wants everyone to know that he alone is God. All right, let's land the plane here. Who else, back to chapter 41, who else can foretell the future? Who, verse 26, who has declared this from the beginning that we might know or from former times that we might say he is right? Has anybody else done that? Surely there was no one who declared. Surely there was no one who proclaimed. Surely there was no one who heard your words. Formerly I said to Zion, behold, here they are, and to Jerusalem I will give a messenger of good news. But when I look, there is no one, and there is no counselor among them who, if I ask, can give an answer. So here's God's conclusion. All idols, all false gods, all pagan deities, verse 29, are false. Their works are worthless. Their molten images are wind and emptiness, because there is no one like the Lord. Okay? That is what this is about. Woo! Okay. Let's come up for air here for a minute. There is no one. There is no one like the Lord. None his equal. Now, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to read chapter 40 through the end of the book. And I want you to tell me, as we get into this next time, who is the identity of the servant? Okay, we actually looked a little bit about it at it today. We saw that phrase come up. I want you to do that, okay? And in the meantime, let us rest confident, trusting, and with a quiet heart that there is no one like the Lord. He has planned the end from the beginning. We don't know the future. We don't even know what the weather's going to be like this afternoon, but God has planned it and knows it all, and we are in him and he is in us, and so all things are well as we trust the one who knows all things and declares all things, and uh, is good and kind to us. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful chapter. We we rest in and trust in this same great God. Uh, though this was not directly written to us, it is written for our benefit that we can see of your nature and of your character. Might it bring a similar stability and confident trust and quiet peace in our hearts as we rest in you, the one who not just knows the future, but who has planned it fall from the beginning. We are grateful to you in Christ's name. Amen.